January 15, 2004, 30 years since a family was slain in their home one cold winter morning. Four out of the seven were taken from this world to fulfill a sexually deviant fantasy of the then young Dennis Rader. He was a budding serial killer whether he knew it or not. The thrill of his first kill and the inability to control himself, allowing him to not only masturbate at the scene, but to leave behind seminal fluid, showed him this. Binding, torturing, killing was what he really needed to have sexual relief, and it would prove to be his downfall. In those 30 years, he had picked off woman by woman, trying to recreate the high, even claiming to have done so with Nancy Fox. But with each year, the police didn't knock on his door, figuring out who he really was. He became confident, arrogant even, that he was the greatest serial killer of all time. And that brought a different kind of satisfaction. And with each year he aged, that became the thing he chased more than killing. That is, until he made a fatal error in his cat and mouse game, and his house of cards came tumbling down. Kenny Landwehr has been chasing down BTK for most of his career in law enforcement. He was in college when Dennis Rader took a life, living with his parents when the news of the slaying came out in the media. He never even gave the story a second thought, but it planted a seed deep inside, one he had no idea would grow and not be satisfied until he brought down Wichita, Kansas' most prolific serial killer, B.T.K. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we close out the show's biggest series thus far. All the puzzle pieces will fall into place finally, giving those who have been chasing the boogeyman for 30 years their first peaceful night of sleep since Dennis Rader's reign of terror began. He wasn't a drifter. He wasn't a loner. He was married with two children who were grown and a wife of more than 30 years. He held a position within Park City's municipalities and was an influential leader at Christ Lutheran Church. The profile they had read, studied, and memorized was everything that BTK was not, with the exception of his self-centered attitude being his downfall. BTK would fall with one small error, trusting the men who were hunting him down and handing them exactly what they needed to crush the man, myth, and legend, BTK. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sexual fantasies, perversion, torture, murder, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. Thank you for joining me tonight to close up this case, but I want to do a little bit of housekeeping first. Make sure you are following me on Facebook and Instagram, and if you are tuning in on my YouTube channel, make sure you are subscribed and have that notification bell checked so you never miss an upload. Tonight, my list of love to my true crime nerds goes out to my family. You all have supported me in your own way as I've made this journey into the world of becoming a true crime podcaster. And for that, I love you all dearly. The show hit six months this month, and if it wasn't for their continued support, we may not have made it this far. So to my husband and my kids, thank you for dealing with my craziness. My mom, brother, and in-laws, thank you for tuning in and telling everyone you know I cannot thank you all enough. Now, finally, let me ease some fears. This week, the show jumped into dark, uncharted waters and began the unknown looking for a sponsor. We have grown so much, and I want to give all of my nerds easy access to the show, to myself, in each and every way. And that leaves us needing to head out and searching for these sponsors on our own. Until then, if any of you would like to support the show, you can head over to the website and click on the donate button, and that's at www.thetruecrimelibrarian.com, or share the show with your friends and loved ones, and finally, if you leave a review, it helps the show grow even more. All of these things are a perfect way for you to show your love during the month of love to one of your fastest growing favorite true crime podcasts ever. All right, enough of that. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. January 17th, 2004. Her Slovenia wrote an anniversary piece marking 30 years from the first time BTK took a life and began the widespread fear in Wichita, Kansas. The routine was coming home, checking the phone line, and if it was dead, get out, get out immediately because the boogeyman was hiding and waiting for the perfect moment to kill you, okay? This started way back with the Oteros. He snipped phone lines. It's his signature move. It's also a move that was looked over in several cases, several. The Otero murders was the coldest case of his known seven victims. It happened January 15th, 1974. So it is 30 years old at this point when Herslevania decides to write an anniversary piece. Now, thanks to a split decision in 1980s by Kenny Landwehr, who was part of Lemonian's Ghostbusters group, They decided to hold off 
1985, we saw the introduction of testing DNA. However, the amount of fluid, the amount of tissue, the amount of whatever it is you wanted to test had to be a large amount. And at that time, had they tested for DNA, they'd have used up the entire sample they had. So Kenny, he decided, we're not going to test it. Not yet. Now, he's 25 years into his career with the Wichita, Kansas Police Department. 12 years into being head of the Homicide Department with Wichita PD. The semen found at the 1974 murder scene had not been tested for DNA thus far. Now, about a year ago, about 2003, Kenny had a hunch. He had a hunch. He wanted to see what the DNA profile was for the skin that was found under Vicky Wergel's fingernails and the semen left at the Otero murders. Now, here's the thing when it comes to forensic and your cold cases and your active cases. You can submit for a cold case to have any kind of forensic done to it. However, it takes the back burner to whatever comes in for an active case. So 2004, Kenny's still waiting on how that profile, how that DNA profile matches up, okay? Aligned from Hearst's 30-year anniversary piece is going to be the, the very thing to set forth all these cold cases, all these BTK murders, it's going to throw them from what's considered cold case to an active case. Because in there, it says that Betty, he's a lawyer, has been um, tied to the case in multiple times. You've probably heard his name a hundred times if you've done anything with BTK. If you get on and you get on the web and you start searching BTK, Betty's name is going to come up. Okay. He also taught a class over at Wichita University. And during his class, he used the BTK case during a segment and was so surprised that nobody in his class knew what he's talking about. He said, quote, I had zero recognition from the students. Not one of them had heard of it. This pissed Dennis off. What do you mean nobody has heard of me? And Am I not being feared? Okay, let's remedy that situation. He's going to show them fear. And it was time for them to know just how scary he really was. So the last known victim of BTK is Nancy Fox. That's the last victim tied to BTK. We have victims since then, right? We have Maureen Hedge. We have Vicki Wergel. We have Dolores Davis. We had Anna Williams be stalked, but she escaped the wrath of BTK when she decided to hang out one night with her friends at the bowling alley and didn't come home on time. And Dennis, his alibi ran out of time. He had to get back because technically he was supposed to be at the library at the university studying and anything after 10, his wife would know, well, that's not where he, that's not where he's at. So we had a victim that actually escaped. Once she figured out she escaped BTK, 
she packed her crab and got the hell out of there. And I don't blame her. But now it's time to show them what to be scared of. On March 19th of 2004, 700 pieces of mail arrived at the Wichita Eagle mailroom. However, among that 700 pieces was a single white envelope, and it's one that changed the course of the BTK investigation forever. Inside of it was three grainy photocopies. I mean, you can barely make out what they were uh, originally looked like. Barely. They were of a woman lying on the floor. Now, also inside of this envelope was a copy of Vicki Wurgle's driver's license and a strange stenciling of GBSOAP7-TNLTRDEITBSFAV14. Now, what that stenciling means, it hasn't exactly been determined or had the investigators determine what it was. They have withheld that information from any and all that pertains to BTK. Okay. There is, if you get online and you dig far enough, you are going to find that Robert Betty, the lawyer we had just talked about, he broke the code. And he says the message read, Vagina 7, let Betty know 14. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. have no clue. Dennis is going to be the only one that really knows what that means. And if he wants us to know that information, he will let us know. Currently, he's sitting on it. One thing is clear. Despite Dennis's poor grammar, his spelling, he is not as stupid as people like to indicate that he is. Multiple profiles of who BTK is have come out. They all indicate that Dennis is an uneducated man, that he struggled with school, that, uh, you know, there was no secondary, there was no college, there was none of that. He went into the military, yes, but, I mean, other than that, Dennis had very low IQ. Okay. I don't, I don't agree with that statement. And here's why. You can be a very intelligent person and not speak or not write in perfect English grammar. And you can also be an extremely intelligent person and not know how to spell the word too. I mean, we watch it on social media all the time. We make fun of people for being grammar Nazis and spelling police, but it's very apparent that those two things do not indicate whether or not you are a smart person or an educated person. If you looked at my show notes, well, I look, I look half retarded, excuse me, half challenged. Um, I can't spell to save my life. Seriously, if it was gun to my head, spell a word, I'd be like, can I use a dictionary? Because <laughs> it would be bad. But that doesn't indicate that there is a lack of intelligence in a person, okay? He was very intelligent. But where Dennis shined the most was his 
street smarts was his ability to look at the details. He didn't he didn't see the picture as a whole picture. He picked out details and he focused on those and then moved to another. He was able to break down the entire photograph and tell you this, this, and this, okay? He's very meticulous. So, I, I mean, I can't agree with the profiles that have come out and said that he is an uneducated or he's an unintelligent man. He is very intelligent and you, you have to be. I mean, you have uh, avoided arrest for 30 years. You have to be. Now, also inside of that envelope was a photocopy of what looked like the BTK signature. Here we are, 2004. We have not seen communication from BTK since the Nancy poem. Okay, so we haven't heard from him. Again, we still don't know about Vicky. We don't know about Marine. We don't know uh, about Dolores. We don't know any of that. But we're fixing to we're fixing to figure out what's going on. So we've got all these years in between. Nobody, there's there's just a couple people that are inside of the Wichita Eagle that are still riding that were riding with the last communication with BTK and would recognize that signature. And one of those people was Glenda Elliott. Her Slovenia also had seen the BTK signature before, but Glenda was out on the beach. She was out getting stories. So she had seen this when Lemunian, when he was chief, he brought in select reporters and he shared with them some stuff about the case. And he told them, if I see this out in the media, I'm going to know you did it. And if you leak this information, you will never get an exclusive from this office again. As much as we see media hound, there's a select few that play their cards right and they end up with some of the most groundbreaking pieces in their industry. Okay. And that's because when somebody says off the record, they can be trusted to not turn around and repeat what they just heard that I to me that's the quickest way to kill your career if you want to know something especially in the crime world if you want to know something and they tell you not to say a word and you turn around and say it they know who they said it to you just sold yourself down the river for 30 seconds when you probably could have ended up with something great so Glenda Elliott, she's seen it and she's looking at this and it's, it's a photocopy of the signature that is a photocopy of another photocopy of another photocopy that was drawn in pencil. So it's super, super distorted. When you look at it, it I mean, you can make out like the B, um, you can barely make out the two dots that are placed with the inside of the B. And it's just, it's just really, you can just tell it's been copied too many times on a poor copy machine. So this is what we have inside of this package. Okay. The three of them, they're looking at the copy of the photos and they're looking and they're like, Are, these have to be crime scene photos, right? Well, Hearst decides to take all the content of that envelope over to the PD 
just before the morning briefing, and he shows it to Captain Daryl Haynes, okay? And Daryl takes one look at it, and he says something along the lines of, you know, this is probably some crazy asshole looking to spook everybody, but, you know, with his better judgment, he decided Landware needed to see it. His homicide team needed to see this. Okay, so they've turned over the contents, right? <laughs> Hearst made copies. Copies of copies of copies. But as he's sitting there waiting to hear back and the briefing's going on, he, he starts to really look at, at what he just copied, okay? He didn't really pay attention. That driver's license, he didn't really pay attention to it. And as he's sitting there and he's looking at his own copies, he sees the signature of Vicki L. Wergel, a case that he knows has gone cold and there's not a suspect in sight. Now he's, he's looking at the envelope and he's looking and something just seems off. And when he starts to go over the sender information, it is return sender to Bill Thomas Kilman at 1684 South Old Manor, Wichita, Kansas, 67218. Hearst looks at those photos one more time. Okay, so are y'all picking up on this? Um, like I said, hindsight's 2020. We're looking at this. They've already picked it out. But we there there wasn't ever a tie there. Landwehr had an inkling because he wanted to test the Ontario DNA against the Wergel DNA. There was an inkling that they might be tied, but there was nothing there concrete. The phone line had been ripped from inside. It wasn't cut out back. You know, uh, Vicky's body was found in the dining room because first responders from the fire department moved her body. There was there was nylon. There was there was proof of bindings. There was proof of strangulation. But the way that investigations work, Bill was there. That was the only suspect they saw. Everything else went out the window. So we have Hearst, a reporter looking at this stuff and he's he's really studying it by quitting time that friday he hadn't heard anything back from landware or anyone in the homicide department and he knew that if he hadn't heard anything by monday we he had to go to them he had to make sure they saw what he was seeing bill thomas kilman b t Okay. 1684 South Old Manor, Old Man, Wichita, Kansas. Vicki Wergel. Is BTK taking claim to Vicki's murder? Quite possibly. March 22nd, 2004. Kenny Landwehr, he's at the Riverside Hospital Monday morning. He's not in his suit, he's in casual wear. His wife, Cindy, was fixing to have her gallbladder removed, and he had taken the day off. He needed the day off. His family needed him. At least that's what he thought he had done. His cell phone rang out as they, the nurse was hooking his wife up to the IV, and 
The words he heard took, took him a second to register. It's a letter from BTK. He managed the words why, and Detective Dana Gouge told him it has the BTK signature and a copy of Wargle's license, and the cherry on top is there's pictures from her bedroom of her body on the floor, and she's been posed. And Landwehr, the hair on the back of his neck is standing straight up, and he says, where'd it come from? The son of a bitch he's been hunting since he was in diapers with Wichita PD had resurfaced on the day his wife needed him most. And Kenny told him, bring it to me. So Detective Gouge, he collects up what he has and he takes it over to Kenny. And Kenny, he wasn't about to tell Cindy what he had just heard. And here's the thing about these photos, okay, and why we know they're not crime scene photos. If you listen to last week's podcast, number four, you know that when the firefighters arrived after Bill's 911 call telling them that somebody had killed his wife, they moved Vicki Wurgle into the dining room. Forensics and the investigation team, when they came into the home, the photos of her body were not of her in the bedroom. They were of her in the dining room. Also, looking at the photographs, you can see that her arms have moved between photographs. Forensics do not move the body in any way when they are photographing it. They don't want to disturb any kind of evidence. They don't want to accidentally hide anything. They want to leave, they want to see it as what the killer last saw. Okay. So that's how we know we're not looking at crime scene photos. BTK or whoever took these photos was the person who killed Vicki Wurgle. One look at what Gouge brought him and he knew it's BTK. Shit, you know, he's got another chance of this and he can't fuck it up. So the first move in the game of chess between Landwehr and Raider would be getting Hearst to hold off on printing the story of this. It came from the Wichita Eagle. Hearst Lavinia had this in his possession. And to think they weren't going to write a story about it would be asinine. The dumbest thing ever. How could you think that? Because that's exactly what he wants. So, we need him to hold off on printing the story. And for everything that Kenny Landwehr could get Hearst to hold back in the case, only provided PD with a stronger strategy, okay? So, Landwehr told him, get on the phone, get with Hearst. We need two days time, at least, before the Eagle printed the story. Next... He needed some manpower, and this time, 10 people who were part of the Ghostbusters isn't going to cut it. He needed a whole force. They could not let BTK slip away again, and land where the pressure was on the moment he saw what was in that envelope. So, Landwehr goes back into Cindy's room, and here's the thing about their marriage. When they first got married, Kenny Landwehr was sent off to Quantico, and he learned some strategies. And one of those things were that if you are married, 
you have an open line of communication with your spouse. And that is because when things get bad and the stress gets bad, if you shut down and don't tell her or tell him what's going on, they are going to think the worst possible thing. And eventually it will eat away at them until the point that they can't take it anymore and your marriage will fail. And so when Kenny got home from Quantico that time, he straight went to Cindy and said, I'm laying my cards on the table and I want this to always be the way we talk about things like this. So when he walks back in the room, the hospital staff is gone. Cindy's just waiting for them to will her back. And she asks him, she says, what is it? You know, his detectives don't show up on his day off at the hospital while he's waiting on his wife to have surgery just to shoot the bull. She knows something's up. And Kenny tells her, he says, they had a letter they needed me to read. And that was it. However, his face was a dead giveaway. And Cindy knew it was BTK. She just needed him to say it out loud. So she asked, it's from BTK, isn't it? And Kenny says, yeah, it is. That's it. The police had not linked Vicky to BTK because the efforts that went into saving her ruined whatever setup Dennis had left. Not to mention blinders were on, Bill was home. He had been in the home for 45 minutes before he discovered his wife. Things weren't adding up for them, okay? So they were not looking at anybody else. They thought their man was sitting right in front of them. So we lost time. We lost time investigating and seeing how everything tied back to BTK. Now we have to go back and we have to look at this case 18 years later. Now we have to go back and look at this crime scene and see what we missed. After we know everything's been moved, everything's been bagged, the photos, they don't hold up, the body, the tissue that needed to, to be there for them to examine, it has long since gone. They don't get to look and, and pick at it needle by needle. Okay. So they're starting over with investigating her murder with, you know, worse than just having blinders on. They still hadn't heard anything back on the results of whether or not Vicky's skin underneath her nails matched up with the Oteros. They still hadn't heard anything from them. And now Dennis opened the line of communication back up and anything pertaining to BTK at one time was considered colder than the winters in Kansas until now. We have a letter. This is now an open investigation. And Landwehr picks up the phone and he calls the lab and he says, that stuff I sent you between Wurgle and Otero, I want it now. This is no longer a code case. This is active. Get me results yesterday. So after that, chain of command is followed once they will Cindy back into surgery. Landmark gets on the phone. He talks to his commanders to find out about what the homicide unit had in their hands. Then he turned around and made some more phone calls. He got a hold of his old partner from the Ghostbusters, who was retired Paul Dotson. He was now the, sh the 
chief of police at the university. And Kenny called him and Paul came. And because those two didn't call each other just to, to shoot the shit. If they're making a phone call, we need you. And when the only thing Kenny Landwehr said to him was, come over here right now. That's all Paul needed to drop everything and go to him. And in the stairwell of the hospital, as Kenny is waiting on his wife to get out of surgery, he feels his ex-partner Dawson in on what has happened in the last 25 minutes. It seems like a lifetime. However, this has all happened within 30 minutes on the day he was supposed to have off. So they get together and they start talking and Dotson tells Landwehr, you need a plan and you need a plan right now. So here's the things you're going to need. You're going to need money because you are going to rack up some serious overtime with the people inside of your command. Next, you need cars. You can't roll around in black and whites. You can't roll around in something easily identifiable as belonging to PD. Next, call up KBI, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. little FYI, if you didn't already know, the FBI is a federal level. KBI, that's part of the federal, but because it's ran out of the state of Kansas, they go by KBI. I'm in Texas. Mine is TBI. When we did the Chris Watts case, we, we heard about CBI. That's Colorado Bureau. So these are headquarters set up in states, but it is still federal, the FBI. Okay. They also needed to move to an offsite headquarters. This was to make sure to eliminate as many leaks to the media as possible. The more that they could withhold, the stronger their strategy at catching him would be. So we've got to move to a different site. But here's the other thing. You need a task force and you need a task force of people you can trust. Because this is also another area where leaks can occur to the media. And we want to stop that from happening. Most important that, that Dotson had told Landwehr, you cannot do it all by yourself. Learn to delegate. No matter how bad you want to nail BTK's balls to the wall, you have to have help and you have to delegate it. And Kenny, he hears him, and he's, he's about to take his advice. So Kelly Otis, uh, another member of Landwehr's detectives in the homicide department, he calls over to Hearst, and he simply says, we need two days. We need the Eagle to hold off for two days. Let the PD get our ducks in a row. Let's get a game plan before we make any move. And Hearst was straight with him. He said, I can't promise you two days, but I'm going to try. Now, after Kenny has met with his former partner, he calls up the profilers at Quantico and started developing a strategy for trapping BTK. The lines of communication are open. The ball is in Kenny's court. And if he plays this right, he can slowly sucker BTK in until he has him. So this is what they had to tell him. BTK likes publicity. Call news conferences for every little word of communication. Don't let up. Read scripted statements and answer no questions from the media. 
because if you'll remember back in episode three, we talked about this. If the media deem him as a psychopath or unintelligent or anything negative, anything derogatory, it could completely derail any strategy PD puts in place. Okay. So we're not answering questions. We are going to lead these conferences, not the media lead them. Okay. Here's the next thing. Pick one person, one, to conduct these conferences. He needs a familiar face every time Wichita PD stands up in front of that camera. Landware knew immediately he didn't want anybody else up there but himself because the amount of risk that it would put on them and their family. This is Kenny's game. This is Kenny's big catch. He let it slip through his fingers in the 1980s. He wasn't going to let it happen again and he sure as hell wasn't going to lose somebody or their family because he didn't want to stand up and be the face of the investigation. So Kenny knew it's me. The next was imply progress on the case. BTK does not want to get caught. He's not in this to get caught. What he's in this for is to show you he's got the bigger pair. So if he thinks you're right behind him breathing down his neck, he may become reluctant to kill, which is going to save you victims, which is what we need, right? Here's the thing. Kenny wrote, Kenny writes all this down, you know, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. He has to start putting a strategy together. He sees it slowly coming together, but you know, he's torn. He's at the hospital waiting on his wife and he's trying to throw together this immaculate task force that just fell into his lap that needed to be done ASAP. So he's doing it and he's going to catch him. So Kenny picks up the phone, calls KBI and he says, you know, I need some help. I need some manpower. Just got a phone Quantico. This told me what I need to do. Can you help? And they do. They send him Larry Thomas and Ray London. And they are to stay in Wichita for however long it takes to catch him. Next, Hearst calls back over to Otis and he says, I've got you two days, not a minute more. And we want that story exclusively. And Otis, he has not, I mean, he got the two days that Landwehr told him he could have. So handing them the exclusive story was all that he had to play with, the only chip he had. So he had to play it. Here's the other thing that was mentioned, a tip line. Lemonian set up a tip line back in the 1970s, hoping that somebody had saw something with the Otero murders, with the Bright murder, with, with Nancy Fox's murder. He had hoped that somebody unknowingly saw something happen, okay? It never panned out. Staffing it 24 hours became a big deal and cost a lot of money. So Kenny was cautioned. A tip line may not be something you should do because... You are going to need to investigate every tip that comes your way. And that means you can't just hire somebody off the street to man the tip lines. Kenny had a rebuttal. I'm not going to investigate every name that comes in off that line. I am, however, going to swab every name that comes in off that line. 
We're not wasting hours of manpower trying to figure out what they do and what they don't. We are going to go knock on the door, ask for them to submit to a DNA sample, swab that cheek, and cross-test it and cross-reference. We're going to see if we can't catch our man by using the one thing that will secure a conviction, DNA. If they got a match, they have him. Hook, line, sinker. He's done. No match. No point in wasting any more time on that person. Move on to another. Day one of their two days of radio silence from the Eagle. This is what happened. A tip line was set up and manned 24 hours a day. A task force was selected, handpicked by Landwehr. He took Dana Gouge, Kelly Otis, these are, and Tim Ralph from his homicide department. Then he has Larry Thomas and Ray London from KBI. He chose Clint Snyder and Cheryl James from WPD Narcotics. Cheryl James was brought on because she was capable of shaping the task force computer database and work with Viacap, which is the FBI's greatest composite of criminals and their information. This is, you think finding on Amazon the, the, the Wikipedia of serial killers? <laughs> Have y'all seen that? That encyclopedia and tells you everybody that killed? No, that's nothing compared to Viacap. Nothing. There's information in that system we will never know unless, you know, you're one of the very few who make it into the program at Quantico and succeed and work with Viacap. Then, yeah, maybe you're going to see some, you're going to see some information you had no idea they had. Here's the other thing, Cheryl. She was going to be the one sent out to swab every name that came in through the tip line. The thought behind it was she's a female. And there may be less blowback when she goes and asks for a swap. In that first month that Landwehr had thrown together his task force, he ended up with 50 detectives from various different units within Wichita Police Department. He did set up an offsite headquarters. And it was over at the City County Law Enforcement Training Center at first. And then it was moved to the Epic Center. It was out on the edge of town, and it was away from City Hall. They needed that. There needed to be privacy. They needed to be able to come and go and not have flashing neon lights on them that says, we're police. You know what I mean? So they, they moved, they moved uh, the command center away. Now, Landwehr needed to get with, work, with hers. We need to withhold some of this information that we received. And what Landwehr wanted BTK signature. If he put that out there, he was going to cause mass hysteria and he wasn't ready for that yet. He didn't want the fact that all those letters that I'd read out to you before were stenciled in. He didn't want that to go out. He also didn't want Vicki Wurgle's driver's license out. But you can't have everything, right? There was fear that if they flat out refused to answer questions of the media, that reporters would make the task force lives living hell by assuming anything going on within there. And even if they weren't right, 
It could completely destroy the investigation. So Kenny went back to his chief and was like, I don't think this is a great idea. However, FBI says don't answer questions. We have to find that very fine, thin line between the two and walk it as steadily as possible. Because I can't piss off FBI. I may need their help. And I can't piss off my reporters because BTK is sending crap to them and they have to send it to me. I rely on them being the messenger. And if I piss them off, we'll never be able to withhold information again. So maybe, maybe not, not answering the questions wasn't the best thing. In the end, Landwehr and the chief and others had sat down, debated, and they finally had a plan together. And Landwehr needed to go to Hearst because we need to see how much he's willing to hold. So day two, time was up. The Eagle wanted answers and they were going to get it. And Hearst hadn't heard from Landwehr, so he sat down and called him. And he said, we need to talk. And Landwehr said, come over, we'll talk about it. When they sat down, there was questions burning in a hole in the back of everybody's mind at the PD. And the question was, did Hearst and his people at the Eagle make a copy of what we have? And so he flat out asked him, did you make a copy? And Hearst says, yes. And Landwehr says, can I have it? And Hearst says, no. And that's the end of that conversation. It doesn't go any further. Neither one of those men lose temper. They are like, okay, fine. Okay. So let me sit down and tell you what I want. And Landwehr, this is what he wants. He wants to withhold the signature. He wants to withhold the stenciling. And he wants to withhold Vicky's driver's license. So Hearst goes, I'll give you the signature. I'll give you the stenciling. However, the letters will be published. But I can't give you the driver's license. And Landwehr knew he wasn't going to get all three, but he got, he got two thirds of what he wanted. And that was good enough. Now Hearst had a question for Landwehr. And he says, is the letter from BTK? And Landwehr confirms 100% it's from BTK. How do you know that? There was no, nor have there ever been, a Bill Thomas Kilman. BTK. Another question developed behind that. And <laughs> Hearst asks, how do you know it's BTK? And Landwehr says, no comment. March 25th of 2004, the Eagle runs a front page headline. BTK resurfaces after 25 years. Letter from serial killer ties him to 1986 death. Landwehr is ready. He's standing in front of a packed room. And the first conference from the newest BTK task force is about to to happen. It is a 340 word statement from Wichita PT going public that Vicki Wurgle has been named a victim of BTK. In order to keep BTK communicating, Kenny spoke openly as, as he was instructed. This is the most challenging case I have ever worked on and the individual would be very interesting to talk with. The community was instructed to contact the new tip line with any information that they had at all regarding the identity of BTK or evidence from any of the cases that are linked to BTK, anything. 
Anything they could think that could be tied to BTK, they were instructed to call that hotline. Added was this case had become priority number one within the Wichita Police Department and that the Sheriff's Office and KBI and the FBI departments were all now assisting in this investigation and they were all committed to helping bring BTK to justice. This was specifically said this way in order to hopefully keep Dennis from killing again. Within the first 24 hours, the tip hotline received 300 tips. And per Landwehr's orders, any name mentioned in the tip hotline got swapped. And thus began what was known as the Swabathon. With Vicky's murder officially being tied to BTK, it's now time to clear Bill's name once and for all. And a year ago, when they had decided to cross-match or cross-test the DNA between the Otero crime scene and the Vicky Wergo crime scene, Bill was asked to, to, you know, give a sample of his DNA, and through family, he politely declined. However, he wasn't going to get that option this time. Kenny had decided they were going to draw up a court order subpoena by a judge ordering Bill Wergel to submit his DNA. And Otis was to carry that in his pocket when he went to Bill's home and asked him for a sample. But this time, that subpoena never saw the light of day and Bill never knew anything. He was none the wiser. Because he agreed to test his DNA. He was ready to clear his name. And hopefully that meant they could get on with finding who killed his wife and bringing them to justice. DNA confirmed that whoever killed Vicky had killed the Oteros and Bill was not that person. 18 years after finding his wife dead, his name was finally clear. May 4th, 2004, BTK speaks again. KAKETV receptionist finds an envelope in their mail. The sender, Thomas B. King, the initials indicating BTK. Glenn Horn, the head of the station, opened the envelope and inside were some more of his trophies. Serial killers very rarely give these up, so for Dennis to be giving them away, you have to wonder, was he tired? Was he using them to point the finger back to him? Was he done? Did he think they would ever figure it out? Did he just think that he was outsmarting them so much that showing the PD trophy here and there, they would never figure it out? Was it a small sacrifice to get the relief of this cat and mouse game that he decided he liked so much? I don't know. A lot of questions come from this. You have to wonder why, you know, it could not all just go back to stimming, trying to create fear in the community. Could it? Inside the envelope, there was a word search, photocopies of two ID cards, a photocopy of a badge with the word special officer on it, and 13 chapter headings for something he called the BTK story. That word puzzle you can get online, you can Google it. I will have it on my Instagram and Facebook page if you want to look at it. It indicated a few things about BTK and how he hunted. Words were found were 
prowl, pet, follow, sex, fantasies, details, telephone company, 6220, officer, serviceman. BTK was essentially giving away some of the very best information he had. Info that the police didn't have to begin with. So on May 10th, just six days after receiving this new correspondence, Landwehr gets up and does another news conference. He says they had turned, quote unquote, the letter over to FBI to determine its authenticity of the letter. Very short briefing that ended with some jokes because Landwehr had a little bit of difficulty pronouncing the word authenticity. But in the end, it was lighthearted and it was simply meant to keep him talking. On June 9th of 2004, BTK delivered what would be considered the first BTK fieldogram, like a telegram. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, so many jokes. It was located at the southeast corner of First and Kansas. It was a clear plastic bag that he had taped to the back of a stop sign. Inside, Dennis gave them his very first short story, Death on a Cold January Morning. If you go back all the way to episode one when we talked about the Otero murders, you would hear Dennis loved after... After the murders, after he committed a murder, he would go home and for several days, go back over the details over and over. He'd play the entire scene out over and over and over until he had those details perfect. And then he sat down and he wrote about them. He put them into short stories that he would title as an homage to the people he killed. This was a very detailed story of what happened the morning 30 years ago inside of the Otero family's home. I've read some of this. I've discussed this in episode one. So let me just lay this disclaimer. If you want to go find it, you can read it. Um, but it's, it's nothing really more than what we've already talked about. And there's not much more to it that hasn't already been discussed on the podcast in episode one. So, like I said, you're more than welcome. I'm not going to stop you. Go, you can go read it. It's from Dennis's point of view. It's skewed. The grammar's hard to get back. I mean, I've read a few things from him on the show. It's really hard for anyone to, to read aloud what he's trying to say. So, you know, balls in your court. Before Landwehr could get to work that day, he had come home to attend to his son. Kenny and his dedication to finding BTK had become all-consuming. However, in the back of his mind, he knew he had a wife, and they had James. And they had adopted James when he was nothing more than a little bitty baby. And now, he was a boy. He was, you know, he was eight years old. He was one year younger than Joey Otero when Joey lost his life and he needed his dad. He didn't understand. And, and Cindy and Kenny Landwehr, they really battled with whether or not they needed to tell James. They were very open in their marriage, 
But how open should they have been with their son? That was something they kind of were on the fence about. Because he was pulling all-nighters, he decided he was going to sit down and talk with his son. He was going to tell him what, why daddy wasn't coming home. Wasn't because daddy didn't love you. Wasn't because mommy and daddy were splitting up. It's because daddy, he's hunting somebody. He's hunting a bad guy. A man named BTK. But James is not to be worried. He's very old in his, his age. And Kenny doesn't think there's any danger. Until James asks this question. Quote, but what if BTK has a son? And it's the son who's doing this now. End quote. Now, Otis and Gage had hinted at this before when this investigation kicked back into overdrive uh, with the very first envelope of communication. And it was, what if someone else was pretending to be BTK? Landwehr dismissed it because the person communicating with them knew too much about what was never let out in the media. He knew too much about the crime scenes. He knew too much about the victims. There was just, there was no way this was not BTK himself. However, in the back of Kenny's mind would always be the question of his son. What if BTK has a son and it's the son who's doing this now? Now we know hindsight Brian Rader never had anything to do with what his father did. At, during that time, I'm sure it ate away at Kenny. But now, just know, to all of my listeners, Brian Rader never had an idea of what his dad was doing, nor was he ever a part of it. Unfortunately, you know, he grew up in what was seemingly... A perfect childhood. His father was there with him through Cub Scouts and, you know, helped him to become an Eagle Scout. Brian and Carrie had a different father than what we have learned who Dennis Rader is. So let's just halt that right there. Brian was never, never a part of any of this. On July 17th of 2004, at the downtown Wichita library, a staff member found a plastic bag in the overnight book drop. It contained papers with the letters BTK. Police were called and those who were first on scene shut down the whole library. Now, if you were a citizen within Wichita and you had seen the multiple conferences that have come on the television where Landwehr is talking about how him and his staff are communicating with BTK and, you know, this case has picked up and is no longer considered cold. You would freak out once you saw that the library was shut down. And Kenny, when he came into the library, he was heated, like hot under the collar. He was like, why would you do this? You're drawing media's attention here, you know. You could have simply called me and I could have came in and picked it up and we could have walked out and nobody would have been none the wiser as to what was found. Now we've shut down the entire library. The media is going to find out because people are going to say, I can't go to the library. They have it shut down. Police are there. You know, you might as well put a spotlight on it and, and throw out the BTK bat symbol. 
Kenny was not happy with this. He was not happy at all. But what he was going to find inside of it was a little concerning. Inside was what Wichita PD calls the Jakey letters. And BTK says, I have spotted a female that I think lives alone and or is a spotted latchkey kid. Just got to work out the details. I'm much older, not feeble now, and have to condition myself carefully. Also, my thinking process is not as sharp as it used to be. Details, details, details. I think fall or winter would be just about right for the hit. Got to do it this year or next. Number X, as time is running out for me. This simply indicates he's ready to kill again. Or he's already killed again. Because just 12 days prior, an Aragonia High School homecoming king and class valedictorian had been ran over by a freight train four miles from his family's farm. If I mispronounce that high school's name, I'm, um, I apologize now. The homecoming king had been wrapped in bailing wire and he was tied to the tracks. Investigators tried to keep that part of it secret, but it didn't work. BT claimed to have lured Allen, the teenager, to the tracks, pretending to be a private detective looking into the BTK case. Jakey would play the bait. They would capture him and turn him over to the police. BTK referenced bondage, sadomasochism, and belling wire, describing the sexual thrills he got not only from being with Alan at the tracks, but while I peck this out, in quote. Grainy copies of photos showed someone in bondage out in the woods. There was a hood over his face. He wore white tube socks on his feet. And the claim was Jakey and BTK had been playing games. The more detectives looked into this claim, the more they realized BTK was just blowing smoke and taking claim for something he had nowhere close been to. He didn't do it, he went close to it, nothing. I think it was finally proven that this teenager had uh, wrapped himself up in that bailing wire and, and laid down on the track. On January 22nd, Landwehr went in front of the cameras once again, giving BTK some more spotlight. He thought his crimes and what he needed to keep the fear going. BTK needed to have his name in the media. He needed to have the spotlight on him. That was the only way he was going to man maintain the reign of terror he had for the last 30 years. So Landrare decides it's time for the residents of Wichita and the surrounding suburbs to take action by practicing personal and home crime prevention techniques. Right after BTK bounced back into spotlight with communication of the third after the 30-year anniversary piece, gun sales around Wichita skyrocketed. Residents were going to stay safe, and it was their right. It was their Second Amendment right to do so. It's after this conference, Landware was approached, and Hearst Lavania's credibility went out on the line. The person who was speaking to him 
was unofficially pointing a finger at Hearst, but wasn't sure if police were really ever going to do anything about it. And Kenny said he didn't need to look into Hearst because he knew without a shadow of doubt that Hearst was not BTK. And this, and this guy couldn't believe it. So he goes to Hearst and he's talking to him and he's kind of telling him, you know, they don't think, they don't think you're BTK. And Hearst, you know, says, of course not. I've been swapped. And, and his colleagues had no idea until they confronted Hearst about the fact that Landwehr wasn't concerned about him. That's because Landwehr is not stupid. If you're going to be in my inner circle, I'm swabbing your freaking mouth. I am getting your DNA. And if you're not going to give it to me, you don't get to be privy to what I have to say. End of story. August 20th of 2004, there has not been a peep from BTK. And with every day he is silent, Landwehr loses more sleep. He can't take it. You know, something. Some, he has to say something. He has to have something to say. So, no more. On August 20th, Landwehr gets up and he decides, we're going to talk about the Nancy Fox poem, O Death to Nancy. There was a connection to P.J. P. J. Wyatt. He was an English professor at Wichita State University and had used the obscure folk song, O Death, in his class. Here's the thing. The poem is eerily similar and they wanted to know who had a connection to Dr. P.J. Wyatt prior to his death in 1991. BTK claimed to have not taken Wyatt's English class or to the fact that he did or did not know Wyatt after his arrest once asked. There are two reasons for instigating this conference before they had heard from, in, you know, anything from BTK. One, because he never thought we'd make the connection. Or two, to tell us how stupid and wrong we really are. Either way, they would get what they wanted. BTK talking. Again, nothing. August 26th of 2004, six days after the O-Death conference and still nothing. So what Landwehr do? Got up, stood in front of them cameras again. He wanted to talk about the 1979 burglary of Anna Williams' home and the Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear poem. They wanted to talk to anyone who might have seen the original poem. BTK, silent. Crickets. October 22nd, 2004, BTK finally breaks his silence. A USPS worker found a strange package in the drop box next to the I-35 corridor. It contained a four-page document labeled C2. It appeared to be a chronological account of BTK's childhood. It also spoke of his relationship with his mother and the incident in which she found the yellow seminal stain in his underwear. We talked about this back in episode one, you know, for Dennis's mother and father, masturbation, no, bad, 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 okay? So he was shamed when they found out and therefore when Dennis would masturbate afterwards, he wouldn't, he would do it in something that could be thrown away. 
along with this was mention of later in life and some run-ins with prostitutions or sex workers. His fantasy with binding some of the sex workers got a little got a little scary, got a little much. And it would make many of those sex workers not want to see him after their first time. And he was deemed just too weird. Okay. This what this had to be a big blow to Dennis and his self-esteem because it was it was not to be talked about when he was a child. It was not something acceptable in his family. Even just masturbation was wrong. Therefore, him and his fantasy with tying, with binding, with rope and things like that. No. But for him to go out and actually pay somebody who makes a living at having sex with other people and they are calling him weird, it has to be a major hole in his self-esteem. And this could very well possibly be what drove BTK into seeking out the Otero family and killing them. Because if he can't get somebody who has sex multiple times a day for money to, to help him live out fantasies and give him sexual relief and gratification because he's weird, something clicked. It had to have clicked inside of him. And he knew that in order to get that gratification, he had to make somebody else do it for him. He had to bind them. But so they would not call him weird afterwards, he had to kill him. And then he learned, I kind of like the killing part of this. No matter where you stand, no matter how you are, as far as looking at the psychology of crime or criminal, you can't ignore the fact that if a sex worker did tell Dennis Rader he was too weird for them to take his money, he had that had to be the one thing that helped push him from being just oddly sexually aroused by binding and tying up something that was not um, talked about. It was taboo during his younger years in life to pushing him to the fact that I can still get it, but if I kill them, then they don't have to, you know, make me feel like a degenerative. Okay. It could be something that simple that had pushed him into killing. And I'm not laying blame because it's their body. You know, if they want to sell it, okay. But they also have the right to make out the rules they don't want or do want. Okay. There's got to be an outline for them. Just because they sell their body for sex doesn't make them an awful person. It doesn't make them any less worthy of respect. It doesn't make them, you know, it, they're not out there asking for serial killers to come and kill them. This is their line of work. This is what they chose to a degree. Okay. I know what you're saying. Just, you know, 
we're selling people into sex slaves and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the women who get up and, and make the choice to go and stand on the street or to check into whatever escort service they're working for, whatever. That's their decision. And they also have a right because that is their body to make rules. And if you binding me in an awkward way that makes me feel uncomfortable, makes me feel unsafe, they have a right to deny service. Okay, that I mean, let's just lay that out on the table. They have that right. And Dennis being deemed weird and unaccepted in a world where it, you know, you may find more people willing to partake in that activity. It's, it's, it does something to the mind. It does something to the personality. And for him, it could have been the very thing that turned him into to, to killing. Late October, Dennis was on the hunt again. At least he says he was. He had found a woman um, that he liked that fit his requirements of becoming a hit. And the more, though, he scouted her out, the more he realized there was a lot of road construction near her home which meant that having an escape route would be sketchy. You never knew how often the, the construction was going to change, which direction it was going. In the end, for safety reasons, and because he is getting older, he decided to abandon the entire hit. On November 30th, Landwehr stood up again, and this time he was going to talk about the last communication with BTK. He shared some of the background that BTK shared, and as this was claimed to be true, he was on the lookout for anyone who had ever mentioned a similar background in life, or, you know, have you heard something, you know, does your spouse go, did, did they go through something like this? you know, was the the in-laws, were they this strict? They were looking for a breadcrumb, a specific one, in a bread factory. It was hard. On December 8th of 2004, Dennis decided he was going to make contact through telephone with this next communication. So he called over to KAKE-TV one of his favorite people to use as a messenger. And when the person answered the phone and Dennis said, this is BTK, they hung up. Thinking obviously this was a hoax because up until this point, BTK doesn't communicate through phone. So Dennis decides he's going to call the Hellsberg Jewelers. Does that name ring a bell for you? Should. It is one of Nancy's part-time positions she held just prior to her death. He calls the jewelers and he says, I'm BTK. But before he can even get the K out, they have already hung up on him. He's getting pissed. No one's listening to him. And damn it, he was going to make somebody listen to what he had to say. So who do I call next? Well, he called a bunch of people and they all hung up on him. Until he called the convenience store down at 3216 East Harry. It's the quick trip. Dennis calls. The kid working picks up, answers quick trip, and Dennis says immediately, don't hang up. There's a bomb in your store. 
when I read this line, I immediately went back to speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. <laughs> you know, don't let the bus go below 50. That's where I was. Sorry, I had to share it. <clears throat> Lighten it up a little bit. Anyways, he says, don't hang up. There's a bomb in your store. This is BTK. Finally, somebody was giving him attention. He told the worker, I'm calling to tell you of a BTK package at night in Minnesota on the northeast corner. And now Dennis finally gets to hang up on somebody and hangs up. Police were dispatched over to Murdoch Park, which was at 9th in Minnesota, and began looking in the northeast corner. They looked, they searched, they dug. Anywhere they thought that a package could be hid, they were looking for it. They never found it. On December 19th of 2004, a man who was in Murdoch Park found the package investigators could never find. He took it to his mother's house. It was a small white trash bag. Lord only knows what he thought was inside of it. And when he opens it, there is a doll. This doll's hands are tied behind its back. And there are several sheets of paper that are tied to the doll with rubber bands. And there's a photocopy. And then inside is Nancy Fox's driver's license. Not a photocopy. The actual driver's license. KAKETV sent out a cameraman who got a shot of the bag that this gentleman had prior to the police being called. Then they called the police. Nancy's driver's license is in almost pristine condition after 27 years of being in Dennis Rader's possession. The pages that were tied to the doll contain Chapter 9 Hits, PJ Foxtail, 12-8-1977. Dennis wrote of what transpired between him and Nancy that night of his most perfect hit. He was proud of what he had done. January 4th of 2005, Landwehr releases some details about a necklace that went missing from the crime scene at Nancy Fox's residence. It's a gold chain with two pearls that were set vertically. Police believed that BTK may have given that necklace to a woman he had been dating at the time. Quote, anyone who believes they have seen this necklace or received a similar necklace as a gift in December of 1977 or in 1978, please call the BTK tip line. Along with this statement was a photograph of Nancy actually wearing the necklace and what it, what it looks like. In the end, they weren't holding their breath on the necklace being found, but on the fact that it would cause BTK to reach out and communicate with them again. January 8, 2005. Dennis got bold this time. Dennis got bold and dropped another BTK gram in the back of a truck at the Home Depot. Edgar Bishop was an employee at Home Depot, and he and his friend when they had gone out to his pickup, noticed the Special K box in the back of his truck. Written on the box in block letters were the words BOMB and B-T-K-P-R-E. Edgar thought it was a joke. He threw the box away when he got home and inside was a beaded necklace and several pages of computer type notes. All of it went to the trash. 
BTK's communication never made it to the right hands or hadn't made it to the right hands yet. January 25th, 2005, KAKE received a postcard from BTK. The return address was S. Killett at 803 North Edgemore, Otero Murder Reference, and labeled Communication Number 8. Date, week of 1-1-2005, where between 69th North and 77th North on Seneca Street. Contents, Post Toasties Box, C9, PJ Little Mex, and Daw. Haunt of Kansas, acronym list and jewelry. There is some hesitation to hand this over to the cops. KAKE wanted to make a deal. And when Otis arrived to retrieve the postcard, nobody in that station was ready to give Otis the postcard. Instead, they're trying to make a deal. Laneware decided he's not doing this every damn time BTK makes communication with them. And he was very frank with, with staff over at KAKE. He told them, either give Otis the postcard or he's going to start arresting everyone at the station until there wasn't a one of you left and they would all be charged with interfering with a homicide investigation. Landwehr was done playing these fucking games. It had been a year since communication had started up. He had the chief, he had state officials, he had federal officials, he had people inside of his own community breathing down his neck. He needed to crack this case and catch the son of a bitch who has been terrorizing his community for far too long. His career is on the line and he was done playing games with the media. The postcard revealed one more clue. It said, let me know somehow if you or Wichita PD received this. Also, let me know if you or PD received number seven at Home Depot site 1805 they had no idea what they were talk what Dennis was talking about what at home depot nothing had been turned over to them they were going to go find out so when the task force got the to the drop site surprise surprise there's the new the news media standing around filming landwehr straight up says Did you open the box and every one of them said they hadn't. Landwehr turns around and he tells his men, he says, I don't believe them. And if there's any indication that it had been open prior to us getting here, you arrest every single one of them. He was done. Inside the post toasties box was another doll. It was bound together like Josie Otero was hanging from the pipe in the basement. Only the doll was hanging from a piece of PVC pipe. This had been found close to Park City and Hearst and Potter. They were beginning to wonder if the murders of Hedge and Davis that occurred inside Park City were somehow tied to BTK. A notice was posted at the Home Depot asking if employees ever found a box that looked suspicious or contained odd items. Edgar Bishop came forward immediately. And thanks to the fact that he went out of town immediately after throwing away that special K-Box, it was still sitting in his garbage can. He notified the police immediately. 
Inside was a note that would prove to be a fatal blow to this investigation from Dennis. Actually, it'd be a fatal blow to Dennis, but very beneficial to the investigation. It said, can I communicate with Floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. Under miscellaneous section 494, Rex, it will be okay. Run it for a few days in case I'm out of town, etc. I will try a floppy for test run sometime in near future, February or March. Investigators couldn't believe he asked this question. Could he be serious? Did he really think he could communicate through a floppy disk and it not lead it directly back to him? They were split. Do we answer this question and say no? No. Go ahead, send it. We, we couldn't trace that. Or is he trying to play a game? And he already knows that they can. Detective Cheryl James arrived at the Eagle as Cindy Johnson. She wanted to run an ad in the miscellaneous section for seven consecutive days starting immediately. For $76.35, it's all it took for the task force to learn the identity of BTK and for Dennis to slip up and give them exactly what they needed. The ad ran, Rex, it will be okay. The Home Depot parking lot proved to be, had, had Dennis never said anything, they may have fell behind a little bit in the investigation because they have no idea that the Home Depot thing even happened. But here's the thing. Home Depot had cameras in their parking lot. Of course, we've all seen security camera footage. It's the shittiest shit ever. But they were able to see a dark colored SUV pull up next to the truck. And the person walk over to the pickup. He looks around. And then he slips something into the truck bed. And then he goes and climbs back into his dark colored vehicle. Investigators, they went right to work. First of all, the shot is too far away. There was no way they were going to actually see any kind of facial recognition going on at all. It literally, if you go and you, you can pull it up, you can pull up anything on the freaking internet nowadays. But if you go pull it up, you can see, you can't really make out whether it's a male or a female, if he's bald or has hair, you don't know. You can see the dark colored SUV. Here's the thing that was very interesting and intriguing. The investigators, they start going through this footage frame by frame and they look at the slope of the hood. They look at the slant of the windshield and the wheelbase and they narrow down that the car that they think BTK is using for transportation is a dark colored Jeep Cherokee. So what do they do? They run Wichita residence and surrounding suburbs the a list of registered jeep cherokees they had a list of 2500 names wichita kansas is one if not the biggest city in the state that is a huge pool to be fishing in and they narrowed it down to 2500 people on february 3rd 2005 KAKE -E received a postcard in which BTK 
thank the PD for their quick response on number seven and eight and thanking the news team for their efforts as well. He wrote, and I quote, I received the newspaper tip for a go test run soon. Landware worried. Here's the toss up. If they get this package in from BTK, does he call the bomb squad and have them scan this package? It has been implicated from BTK in the past that if they enter his lair, he was going to blow them up. So is this a Unabomber kind of situation going on? Do they take the chance and open it? Because if they scan it for a bomb, that scanner is probably going to erase any data that's on the floppy disk, meaning they are not going to be able to trace it back to anything. If they take their chance, don't scan it, open it, and there is bomb, well, we no longer have a task force, okay? So, red wire, blue wire. Landware has to make the decision. Raider, at this point, he's getting worried, and frankly, he's really tired. He's, you know, scaring people is requiring a lot of work from him. Because now he's, you know, he's writing the message. He's careful not to give away too many clues. He always has his gloves on. Then he has to drive to a copy machine, copy the message, drive to another location, copy the message, trim it up, drive to another place, reduce it, copy it, drive to another place, trim it, copy it. All of this because he learned or maybe gathered some street smarts that they were able to identify which copier he was using during his communications in the 1970s. Okay, so if we make 75 copies at 49 different places and we've enlarged or shrank or trimmed up the edges, it removed these copy roll marks, okay? It changed the message. Tracking it back to him became exceptionally difficult just through copy machines, okay? So he's doing this with every communication, and this was all occurring between his job, between, you know, continuing to stalk women, between his newfound position with the Christ Lutheran Church. He became the president of the congregation, and that held a lot of responsibilities. But since him and Paula were empty nesters because Brian and Carrie had moved off and started lives of their own, you know, he's just getting tired. He's just exhausting. On February 16th, 2005, KSAS-TV received a padded envelope with seven 37-cent American flag stamps. The sender, PJ Fox. The staff was on the phone with police in no time. A crew from KWCH took video of the contents inside of the package. It revealed a gold chain and a pendant, three index cards, one of which telling the PD how to get back in touch with Dennis Rader, and a purple computer disk. The crew received very strict orders. They were not to air a single second of that video that they took, and no one was to say anything about that disk. Nothing. Otis and Gouge, they gathered up the contents, and they took back off to the command center at the Epic Center. 
They told Landware to get Randy Stone ready. They were on their way. They had the disc. Randy Stone was the man inside of the task force deemed the best computer whiz ever. And he was about to prove them exactly what his worth was. At the Epic Center, Gouge and Otis, they start talking about a couple possibilities. What if he used a public computer? And then they go to the place that this you know, public computer is located, set up a sting operation, and Dennis Rader sits in the back, watches them, and just laughed. They don't know it's Dennis BTK. Sits back and laughs at them. That's a scenario. But everybody stops talking when Stone loads the disc into the computer. They all crowd around him. He opens the file labeled Test A RTF. Dennis had created this file that said, This is a test. See 3x5 card for details on communication with me in the newspaper. Stone opened up the properties field and... It brought up a name, Dennis. The disc had been inside of a computer registered at the Christ Lutheran Church and then used in a computer registered at the Park City Community Public Library. Detectives James and Sullivan sat down, searched the name Dennis and Christ Lutheran Church on the internet, and guess what popped up? Their president's name, Dennis Rader. They had a name, and in, in less than 30 seconds, they had an address. 6220 Independent Street, Park City, Kansas. They loaded into cars and took off. They, you would think these people were racing, switching, you know, they're swapping paint on their cars. They're getting there, driving like a bat out of hell because they have their man. They have a name. They have an address. They have him. While these detectives are on their way to 6220 Independence, they receive a phone call. Dennis Rader doesn't own a Jeep Cherokee. But they were already turning the corner on Independent Street and they were bouncing in their chairs because guess what they could see in the driveway? A Jeep Cherokee. The Jeep was later determined to be registered to Brian Rader, Dennis's son. Laneware did something that completely shocked his detectives. He told them to get back because we weren't arresting him today. Landware wanted DNA. He wanted to know without a shadow of a doubt that Dennis Rader was his man. And he was not going to just walk up and be like, hey, can I get a swab of your DNA? Because had he been BTK, he ain't giving you crap until you get a subpoena and he didn't have shit to get a subpoena on. So we're going to wait. Everybody cool your heels, settle down, take a breath. Let's figure out how we can get some DNA. And then they figure out his daughter, Carrie Rader, had been to a gynecologist some years before and a pap smear was performed. For all my women out there, you know pap smears contain cells from your cervix and your vaginal walls. What's inside those cells? DNA. So they needed to get their hands on Carrie's pap smear and everything that was co collected. 
They wanted to run a DNA test. Finally, they get the go-ahead because it had been collected and it was used with the doctor's office. And there's some legal jargon there, but in the end, Carrie had no idea it was her DNA being cross-referenced to the Otero murders and the Vicki Wargo murder. She had no idea. February 24th, 2005, Sydney Schuler, KBI biology supervisor in Topeka, Kansas, starts the tedious process of getting Carrie's DNA out of that pap smear. That same week that they are working on all of this, trying to nail Dennis Rader to the wall, Paula Dietz Rader notices that there are two different cars on their street, and both of them have men who sitting there all day long, and she never said a word to her husband. She just figured there was some kind of drug dealer on their street, and they were doing a stakeout, and she didn't really want to worry Dennis about it, so kind of slipped her mind, and she never said anything. That afternoon, FBI agent London, he was sitting down at IHOP eating a breakfast that he had missed. And when he looked at his cell phone, he noticed he had missed a call from Schuler. Immediately, he picks up the phone and he calls her back. Within moments of their conversation ending, London calls Landwehr. There isn't a moment's hesitation. He, you know, he hangs up with Schuler and he, and he calls Landwehr. Landwehr was busy spending the few special minutes he could with his son when his cell phone rang. And he answered it not knowing what was going to be said to him on the other end. And London repeated what Schuler had just told him. Two of the alleles didn't come in. Not knowing what that meant, really, Landwehr's heart sank. So, what does that mean? DNA test with multiple alleles. We like to see those three different alleles match up perfectly. And that is how we come back with the 99.9%. With Carrie's pap smear, cultures being older, they were not, they were not able to pull three alleles, three different sections. They were only able to pull one. And so Landwehr, his heart sank and his stomach rose to his throat and he said the words he didn't want to. So it's not him. Let me just clarify what I'm hearing. It's not him. And London said, I didn't say that. It's him. He's a match. 10 for 10. 10 for 10. Dennis Rader is the man we have been hunting since 1974. We just weren't able to test three alleles. We only got one. Landwehr knew it. He finally had his man. That night, nine search warrants were typed up and they called over to Judge Gregory Waller and had him walk up the street to Epic Center and he signed all nine of them the night of February 24th. Janet Johnson was in the process of planning how to announce to the community that they had arrested BTK. Dan Hardy had been part of the, the group that had been swabbing for the Swabathon, and he was pretty much done with his monotonous work. And Landwehr came up to him and said to him, 
you come in with uniform on tomorrow, you're going to be part of the arrest team. Chief Williams decided the best way to get BTK to confess is to set him down with, Ken with Kenny Landwehr, and he would be the first to interrogate Dennis Rader. February 25th, 2005, at 9 a.m., they received the very first phone call from the media asking if the task force was on their way to arrest BTK. Johnson assured them, this is nothing but a rumor. We have no idea what you're talking about. We're nowhere close. The side street in Park City, two blocks from Raiders' home, is where Hardy and Moon sat in the Chief's Impala. The reason they were inside of the chief's car, it's harder to identify that as a undercover police vehicle because there's nothing identifying on it. The lights and things, they're embedded into the grill. It's meant for stealth. It's white, but that's it. That's the only thing. There's no black. You can't see bubble gum. You, you have no woo-woos. You have no sirens. Everything is embedded in the grill and in the headlights. It is all for stealth. They sit there and they are waiting. Behind them sits Gouge and Snyder and London and Otis. Gouge was giving the best gift ever. He was told he would cuff Raider. But the only way everybody was going to let him cuff Raider is if he promised to use Snyder's cuffs. So Wichita PD was going to actually cuff Dennis Raider, but the handcuffs would, would belong to KBI is basically how this boiled down. At 12.15, Dennis Raider was on the move. They had the radio. It was a life. And he was like clockwork. He would be expected in his driveway at 12.18. He always headed home for lunch at 12.15, arriving at 12.18. Never a minute more, never a minute less. Today, he wasn't going to make it home for lunch. Hardy watched Raider's white city truck driving to him. Every man involved in this takedown was sweating bullets, hearts pounding, itching to jump from their seats and take down the boogeyman. Moon flipped on the chief's lights once behind Raider's truck, and he watched as Dennis pulls over immediately. Guns drawn, Moon screams, don't move, hold your hands where I can see them. London added, get down on the ground before he grabbed Raider's neck and forced him into the pavement. Gouge moved in quickly with Snyder's cuff and placed a brand new pair of silver bracelets on Dennis Raider's hands. They had their guy. Raider was ushered back to the cruiser and there waiting was Kenny Landwehr. Dennis greeted him with, hello, Mr. Landwehr. And the man's face, who he's been watching for over a year, communicate back with him. And Landwehr simply replies, hello, Mr. Raider. Park City PD was kept in the dark about the arrest, and once they caught wind, they prepared for a lot of media attention. Back at the department, Raider didn't get the interrogation we've all watched on TV. No one threatened him. No one grabbed him by the throat. No one slammed their fist around. They simply escorted him in, cuffed him to the table, and began swabbing the inside of his cheek. 
And he joked with them. He said, what am I, 4,001? Everything seemed to be civil. Dennis Rader was read his Miranda rights, and he agreed to talk afterwards. At first, they exchanged just pleasantries, and those behind the screen watching the interview going on were becoming extremely bored very quickly. But Landwehr knew he couldn't screw this up. This could mean he confesses or he clams up and lawyers up and we have to take the hard road. So Landwehr is kind of letting Dennis take hold of the interrogation and the beginning. You know, everybody's waiting for him to say the words, I'm BDK. But here's Kenny Landwehr. He's letting Dennis go to the bathroom. He's leaving him uncuffed from the table once he comes back into the room. And finally, Landwehr asks him, why do you think you are here? And Dennis, he, he assumes, you know, this is your case. He says, I've been a BTK fan for years watching it. I'm assuming I'm your main suspect. And Landwehr asks, you know, do you remember anything about the Otero murders? And at first, Dennis slips. He says, yes, four. Well, what, what, whatever was in the paper, a man and a wife and two kids. And the way the paper indicated, it was pretty, pretty brutal. Why do you think the Oteros were murdered? Kenny asks. And Dennis answers him. He says, well, if you take that murder and some of the others, I would say you've got a serial killer on the loose, a lone wolf, kind of like a spy or something. Morton asks him, what do you think would happen if your DNA matched BTK's DNA? And Dennis says, I guess that might be it then. See, it's always, it's always something, it's always intrigued me. I assume the person left something at the crime scenes that you guys can match up with DNA. But after all these years, they still have that stuff? And Landwehr answers, yes. Out came the disc that brought him down. That purple floppy disc is laid out on the table. And he's asked, when did you type this? And Dennis says, you have the answer to it right here. There's no way I can weasel out of that or lie. Almost saying to himself as an epiphany. Three hours in, Kenny could sense Dennis is wanting to keep talking. He just has to let him. And Dennis says, you guys have got me. How can I get out of it? And then the FBI guy loses his patience first. Dennis has been something of a legend for Kenny Landwehr in his career. And he is remaining cool, calm, collected. And here is our FBI guy who has been trained to remain cool, calm, and collected. And he loses it three hours in. And he says, enough, enough. You got to say it. Just say who you are. And Dennis finally says, I'm BTK. On February 28, 2005, Dennis Lynn Rader was charged with 10 counts of murder in the first degree. The death penalty would not be seeked as his crimes were committed before the death penalty was instated in the state of Kansas. March 1, 2005, Dennis Rader was granted bond $10 million. 
Paula Dietz Rader filed for an emergency divorce from her husband, and it was granted within the same day she petitioned. She has since disappeared from the public eye. On June 27th of 2005, Dennis Rader was scheduled for trial after entering a not guilty plea on May 3rd. But he walked into the courtroom this day and changed history with his new plea of guilty. He spoke for 36 hours with Judge Greg Waller about the details of each of the 10 murders and why he proclaims to have done it the way he did. Dennis didn't show remorse. He spoke as if they were all in a bar bullshitting over beers. Inappropriate gestures were made. Almost mocking sounds clicked as he tried to recall what he had done. He answered each and every question. The world would lose the ability to watch Dennis go on trial. But then he went out with one more bang before those steel bars slammed behind him in prison. We watched and hung on every word of Dennis as he spoke. We've never had someone so prolific seemingly divulge each and every detail of when, where, and why. He still possesses something that we may never get to understand, and that is his self-control. How did he manage it for so long? Was the monster so depraved that playing the cat and mouse game that took him down was the only thing to feed it? Why did he slip up after all these years? Pure incompetence with technology or pure narcissism that he never thought investigators could catch him? While he answered many questions, he also raised many more, and we may never get the answer or details because this and those may go to his grave. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we wrap up one of the biggest cases we've covered thus far on the True Crime Librarian podcast. It's been a hell of a ride and I can't wait for you all to hear what's coming next. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the True Crime Librarian so you never miss an update or case. I will see you all back here in two weeks. We are coming into an off week after covering two multi-episode cases. And as always, I leave you with one last line. No amount of guilt can change the past, and no amount of worrying can change the future. Much love, the True Crime Librarian. <laughs>